I'm Steve Glaveski, and this is Venture Backed. My guest today is Michael Thompson. He's a freelance writer, author, and UFC tragic from New York. He's the author of Cage Kings, how an unlikely group of moguls, champions, and hustlers transformed the UFC into a $10 billion industry, which essentially unpacks the rapid rise of the UFC and mixed martial arts, the UFC's business model and economics, the one-man tour de force that is longtime UFC president Dana White, the role of the UFC's owners over time, SEG, Zufa, and Ari Emanuel, and the organization's anti-competitive behaviors and adversarial relationship with its fighters, which, mind you, aren't employees, but independent contractors, most of whom would earn more working a run-of-the-mill administrative job in the public sector. Thompson's work has appeared in publications like The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and too many more to mention. So with that, Here's my conversation with the one and only Michael Thompson. You are back home in, in New York, Michael? Yeah, I'm in Brooklyn right now. Cool. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, I mean, Melbourne, Melbourne, Australia. Uh, you spent any time down here? or? No, not at all, actually. I've never once been there. Um, although one of my best friends lives uh, in Australia. And I have another really good friend in New Zealand who is just here visiting. And mm-hmm. I've been promising him to come visit for 10 years so far. <laughs> so, fair enough, man. Well, it's... you've got the hair, man. Like, you could slot right in at like Bondi Beach with that blonde stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the headphones are holding down most of it, too. It's even longer than it looks. Yeah, fair. Well, there you go. Even better. Even better. I All hope right. you don't mind having a, a little beer here. It's so late it. New York time. Yeah. Well, what is it like? 6 p.m., 7 p.m.? Actually, no, it's quite. Later. No, it's almost midnight. It's eleven. Yeah. Wow, awesome, man! What what kind of beer is it? Is it like Brooklyn Brooklyn Ale or one of the low drops? It's something called Save the Robots. It's like yeah, it's an ale IPA. Um, yeah. One one of no the thousand one of the thousand sort of craft beers coming out of Brooklyn. I take it. I don't actually know where it's from. It's probably from the East Coast somewhere, but yeah, it was just what they had at the shop. Cool. So. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, we're here today to talk all about uh, Cage Kings and the UFC, not so much beer. Maybe we'll leave that for another conversation. <laughs> but, um, man, my uh, my first sort of interaction with the UFC would have been the Ultimate Fighter 1 back in 2005. And I remember watching, you know, Forrest Griffin take on Stefan Bonner in that finale. And like most of us was like, what the hell is this? And from that yeah. point on, I was hooked, especially for the subsequent you know, 10 years or so, I think, you know, the Tito Ortiz, Chuck Liddell, George St. Pierre, uh, Wanderlei Silver years. That was really like when I was, my interest in the UFC was ultimately like peaking during that time. But what was your sort of earliest memories of the UFC, Mike? Um, The, the first memory I have is is after the first one or I think the week before the first one, there was a local news story about, um, about UFC one happening and whether, you know, it should be illegal or not. I I remember very distinctly, like they had this line that it would be, um, 
it would be against the law to kill someone in the cage, but it wouldn't be against the rules. So yeah. if if someone died during the fight, then you know they would still be you know whoever killed them would win. It would still count on their record. The, yeah, you know, I remember reading maybe about go to that. jail. Yeah, yeah, I remember reading about that in your book. Like SEG, I think, were the original owners, and they said something like. You know, there's no rules, no judges, no point systems, just pure uncontrolled violence. And in like bold letters on all the flyers, there are no rules and fighters will basically fight until someone can't go on anymore. So kind of really primal, hearkening back to perhaps the the, the roots of, of the fight sport in some way. Yeah, I mean, that was that was part of the culture back then, too, with cable is sort of the idea that you were getting access to behind the scenes things or things that were too hot for like regular TV, sort of the era of faces of death, the video compilation of people dying. Um, So the specialty like tape market, VHS rentals, VHS sales, the pay-per-view, like I write a little bit about, you know, some of the big hits on pay-per-view, like Howard Stern, you know, cursing and showing nudity and doing all these outrageous things that, um, you know, and advertising the fact that you wouldn't be able to see this stuff on regular television. So that's sort of why you were paying an extra 30 bucks or 40 bucks to go see a a pay-per-view special. And so I think that was you know, part of that pitch was sort of trying to fit the UFC into that that niche that this is something that's too real to be on television. So you have to pay a, a premium price for it, even though the production was very amateurish. There was a sort of, you know, the amateurism had a heightened sense of reality to it compared to what you would see on, you know, network television or, or regular cable channels. Um so it, it made it almost a, a sort of, you know, less a sporting event. And it was sort of like a public safety concern or something. It was like a presidential debate or something. You've like, you weren't necessarily watching to like root for one person or another. You were kind of evaluating, like, is this, is this something that we should condone or like participate in as a culture yeah. and society? Yeah. Well, UFC one definitely, you know, lack the professionalism of the UFC today. I mean, it was, you know, you basically had boxers pitted against wrestlers, kind of reminiscent of, say, you know, Andre the Giant fighting Chuck Wepner or Rocky Balboa fighting, you know, Hulk Hogan. Um, I think it was Art, yeah. was it Art, Art Jimison who fought with like one boxing glove and one bare knuckle. And it was just a, a freak show of sorts. Um, but today, most people think of the UFC, they think of Dana White, but few yeah. people might know that it was actually Art Davey who came up with the idea for the Ultimate Fighting Championship back in the early 90s uh, in a public library of all things. What can you tell us about Art Davey and his motivations for starting the Ultimate Fighting Championship? Yeah, he's a he's a very colorful person. He was um, a marketing executive, basically. He came out of the used car sales business and transitioned and got a job working for one of the marketing agencies that used to work for a car dealership um that he worked at and he spent about 10 years doing that and while he was doing that one of the clients for the marketing firms he worked at was um one of a a beer importer that imported Tecate beer and they wanted to rebrand Tecate to make it more um more appealing to like younger men so they asked for a bunch of different pitches for marketing campaigns they could do to kind of like revive the brand a little bit or change its its public uh perception 
And so Davey came up with the idea of this martial arts tournament where you'd pit different martial arts disciplines against each other. And part of it was, you know, he, he practiced Muay Thai a little bit. He had served in Vietnam and he, you know, he says the original idea kind of came out of his experiences in Vietnam where, you know, they soldiers would tell each other these tales of like R and R trips they had taken to Bangkok or other big cities where they saw these sort of unbelievable street shows or back alley kind of, you know, illegal fights. And one of them was like this tiny Muay Thai fighter taking on a gigantic Indian wrestler and actually beating the wrestler. Um, and that had lodged the idea in his head of like, you know, matching different disciplines together. And, you know, he wasn't the only one that had that thought. It's sort of a, a recurring theme in prize fighting throughout history. But he kind of, you know, it, it stayed with him. And when he had this opportunity to come up with a marketing campaign, he was like, this would be a really good thing that Takate could sponsor. The same way that, you know, in the 1950s, one of his favorite boxing shows growing up was called The Greatest Fights of the Century, just sponsored by a hair tonic. Mm -hmm. And so he thought, you know, you just put the Takate logo over, you know, every graphic on this broadcast and then have people fighting each other from like, you know, judo and jujitsu and boxing and sumo and, you know, Muay Thai and every different discipline you could imagine. Um, and, you know, he spent months working on it. You know, the client spent about two minutes considering it and said no and then moved on. Um, but he had gotten so excited as he was putting the pitch together, he kind of sold himself on his own pitch. And so after, you know, that it didn't pan out for Takate, he kind of kept thinking about it. And he decided to take his life savings at that point and try and make that idea of the tournament into a real like production company that he could sell and and build a business of his own and that's sort of what got the ball rolling just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back one thing separates okay venture returns from great venture returns deal flow do you wish your firm had more of it with just two percent of venture firms capturing 95 percent of returns content is becoming essential to cultivating visibility, reputation, brand, and deal flow. Here at Sonic Boom, we specialize in crafting compelling content for venture capital firms. Find out more and lock in your free one-hour strategy call at sonicboom.vc. And now, back to the show. Yeah, and uh, I mean, just in terms of that sort of demographic that Takate was targeting, essentially young men, that kind of tied in with the initial sort of demographic that the UFC was targeting. And you allude to this in your book that you had sort of a new generation of young men that perhaps were devoid of meaning in some respects. Maybe they didn't have families, they didn't have a stable job, so they weren't able to define themselves through family or career. And they gravitated to things like, you know, gaming, um, or in this case, mixed martial arts. And they just gravitated towards that in a way whereby perhaps a lot of people might identify a little too strongly with their local sports team and become really tribal about it. Sounds like it was kind of like a perfect storm of sorts in terms of demographics coming together with the UFC's product in the, in the early nineties. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was, it was kind of, um, the, the early nineties was also, you know, it was a growth period for the internet. And so I think what made young men especially valuable at that point was that, uh, as they were sort of growing up outside of high school and becoming young adults, they weren't 
they weren't paying for cable subscriptions. They weren't paying for cable pay-per-views. You know, they're moving almost exclusively online for like reading the news or socializing. And so advertisers were willing to pay a premium price to get access to, you know, these young people who, you know, at the same time, there was this big loosening of the credit market. Consumer credit was exploding. There was all kinds of different um, bubbles going on in the U.S. economy. So there was a lot of loose money for spending on consumer goods. There was a lot of excitement, a lot of um, venture capital being, you know, pumped into the economy. And so it created all of these sort of like nascent little bubbles. Um, you know, the video game industry was certainly one. You had a huge growth in the U.S. in the 90s with like... PlayStation and Nintendo and people sort of identifying themselves as relative to their, you know, relationship to these brands. And, you know, that happened a little bit with the UFC and pride, these sort of two rival companies like Pepsi and Coke. Um, and, you know, it, as, as they develop and it kind of reached a peak with that first season of the ultimate fighter, which is where they, they finally kind of broke through. It really sort of like, it, it everything sort of tied together perfectly with this young audience of young men in their early 20s they're not watching tv this brought them back to television it was a powerful brand that reached and brought people back from the internet and you know got them to watch a new cable channel which is spike tv mm. and you know, it was just a windfall for everybody involved and you know even today if you compare the the television ratings the ufc is getting today they're not anywhere near what they were that first couple of years when they had the spike deal in the mid 2000s you know they would get you know two three million views for you know episodes of the ultimate fighter fight night the free fight night events would sometimes get you know four million viewers and now you know on espn plus and espn linear they're getting something like you know, three, four, five hundred thousand viewers. So it's it's a strange kind of uh roller coaster they've been on in terms of holding on to the audience. Yeah, yeah. It's, it seems like the amount of programming has increased significantly. And I remember that turning point as well. It was probably you know something like 10 years ago where up until that point there'd be like one main sort of card a month like one yeah. big event to look forward to and then suddenly it just kind of they flicked a switch and every week there was a new event and it kind of to me at least my personal experience was that of that was it kind of became a bit saturated a bit overkill i didn't really look mm. forward to the events as much anymore and as a result of that i kind of stopped tuning in as much as i did previously and you know the ratings kind of reflect um that sort of experience as well it, it seems but like you said it took about 12 years for um the ufc to break through uh 2005 was the ultimate fighter one ufc one was in 1993 and during that you know more than a decade of time like the ufc faced so much difficulty uh firstly you had a lot of legislators pushing back against the ufc uh john mccain mm -hmm. uh, arizona senator uh, at the time, back in the mid '90s, you know, infamously called it human cockfighting, and essentially lobbied, you know, state governments to ban the sport, which he did quite successfully. Um, what can you tell us about that and you know, the headwinds that created for the UFC in the '90s? Yeah, a lot of that I think is a byproduct of how quickly the first UFC event was put together. You know, they went from getting 
the green light art davy pitching this to a new york production company called semaphore entertainment group which was mm-hmm. um a it was a subsidiary of bmg the big music conglomerate um so he got a green light from them basically in april and they were originally planning to go on air by october so you know they had to kind of come up with everything in the span of about five months completely invent the branding they didn't have the name at that point it was called war of the worlds it was sort of different martial arts worlds um they were still debating they thought they might have it in brazil at that point they weren't sure on the location yet and you know they weren't sure who the fighters were going to be they they didn't actually finalize the contract um, until the day of the event, Art Davy hadn't signed anything final with SEG until a couple of hours before the cameras started rolling and feeding video to the satellite truck. Um, so it was all done very hastily. And, and one of the things that they did in that haste was choose Denver as, as the location. They finally settled on that because... Um, not because they were welcome there, but because there was no law prohibiting them there. And that became kind of a theme, you know, once the first event was more successful than I think any of them thought it was going to be. And so they, they kind of just got pulled away on this sort of, you know, you know, this roller coaster of success where they, they were kind of laying the tracks as the train was going down, you know, and, they were just trying to avoid crashing rather than really thinking through how to fully, you know, and responsibly build the sport. And so they wound up targeting a lot of locations like Denver where, uh, and this, in a way it was kind of a brilliant legal loophole. They'd find places where, you know, it's just, it's not explicitly mentioned in the laws that, that govern the athletic commissions. So, you know, in the handful of court cases they fought in Puerto Rico, they fought a, a big court case in New York, they fought a court case in Michigan. Um, and what the courts all ruled, they ruled in the UFC's favor because where the athletic commissions were trying to prevent the UFC from holding events because they said the, the laws that had, you know, set up the athletic commissions didn't specifically mention they had authority to regulate mixed martial arts or no holds barred fighting which is you know kind of the the label at that time so it wasn't like you know they're kind of pyrrhic victories in a way that the those kind of loopholes allowed them to get the next show on but it built up a lot of uh steam for legislators to sort of organize themselves and say okay we should actually just explicitly ban this we should just you know get in front of this so that they can't weasel through the loophole the next time and I think they inadvertently created, you know, a massive problem for themselves and the way they dealt with legislators. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, they, they, they knew that too. They, they very quickly started trying to work with legislators and Bob Myrowitz, who ran the production company that um, did all of the first UFCs from 93 to 2000. Um, he started lobbying the New York state legislature and try, he got, he, he got athletic commission approval in New York. That was going to be a huge coup for them. And then the deal wound up falling through for, you know, it was kind of a convoluted story, but that was 96. And um, that was one of the court cases they had to fight. So that, um, but, you know, eventually it, it became too much of a, uh, negative publicity story for the governor to 
um, allow the commission to do it. And so he eventually um, asked the, or there was eventually, you know, it, it took place over a couple of months, but eventually the um, state legislature revoked the sanctioning that they had granted to the New York athletic commission and wound up banning the mixed martial arts, which, you know, was in place until 2016. Um, So yeah, they, they kind of picked a series of fights just because, you know, they weren't expecting to succeed at the level they succeeded at. And I don't think they were really expecting to create a new sport. And so they didn't do a lot of the due diligence because it was still, you know, it was a relatively small operation at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember reading that, I think it was at an event in, in Charlotte where the the chief of police basically turned up at the events and threatened that he would basically arrest some of the, um you know, leadership team of the UFC if they came back to Charlotte to run another event, um, which kind of reminded me of, um you know, NWA, uh, performing live and being threatened not to perform the song "Fuck the Police" in I think it was in Detroit, Michigan, and then they did, and the police raided the stage. It's like the same kind of sort of kind yeah. of thing um, here with the UFC. And I did read that the Swift bands that were rolled out also hurt, like the UFC's uh, pay per view buyers. Apparently, um, I've got some numbers here, uh, like pay per views dropped from like thirty six million to seven point five million. Um, and SEG or the UFC went from earning like between one and $2 million in revenue per event down to something like losing a hundred thousand dollars on the back of all of this. So, you know, what was it that kept, that kept the UFC going through, through this period, or was it essentially a catalyst for the UFC to change hands? Um, it, it was a catalyst for them to change hands really. I mean, the, I think the figures you're talking about 37 million down to 36. That was the number of households that had access to the pay-per-view buys. Mm -hmm. Um, So they got kicked off of cable basically. And so they were only available in the U S on satellite cable for about three and a half years, three years um, from like 97 to 2001. And um you know, they had made a bunch of money before 1997. So they had a little bit of a war chest, I think, to keep going. And they had backing from Bertelsmann and, you know, Bertelsmann, you know, that was also, they originally were part of the group that financed Grand Theft Auto. And they, so they had kind of been through controversies um, at the same period in 1997, the first Grand Theft Auto came out and they, you know, they had hired a PR firm to seed all of these controversial stories that video games are going to turn kids into killers. And there's a lot of overlap, I think, with what the early UFC's branding was, but um, they, they had enough rope to keep going for a couple of years. And they were, they were kind of crafty in terms of uh, how they kept going. They, they had a deal with a company in Japan um, it was a sort of a, an outside partner that was called UFCJ. And so they would basically get to use the UFC's brand and they would bring all their fighters over, but the Japanese company would pay for the production and, and broadcast. Um, and so they would get a fee for that. Um, but they were they were, yeah, they were basically losing money for several years. And the Bob Meyerowitz was scrambling to try and, 
get the cable companies to reinstate the UFC onto pay-per-view because he thought that would be the lifeline that would save them. And so he went, he went, he met with all the cable executives to say, what can, what can I do to get back on regular cable pay-per-view instead of just satellite? And they said, get sanctioned by a major athletic commission. So he targeted Nevada. He knew sort of New York athletic commission was sort of gone at that point. Um, but he tried to get sanctioned in Nevada. He did get sanctioned in California, but then there wound up being a, a conflict between the state legislature and the governor who didn't want to release funds to allow the commission to actually pay for overseeing all of the uh, mixed martial arts events. So it, it wound up being kind of a moot point for several years. But he really hoped Nevada would be the place because that's the boxing mecca. That's where everybody... Um, in the fight world kind of saw as, as the most legitimate authority, you know, even though, you know, there's a lot of criticism of the Nevada athletic commission. So he really targeted that. And um, that didn't, the commission didn't give him sanctioning. Basically they decided he, he says that he was going to push for a vote and, decided not to at the last minute because he got information that you know of the five commissioners he didn't have enough yes votes to get the ufc approved so he pulled back and then just decided to invite them to an informational uh hearing or they had an informational hearing then he invited them to a show in iowa that wound up being really bloody and there's a mismatch between jeremy horn and daiju takase that's kind of infamous and and MMA lore where um, Takase was a much smaller guy. He was outweighed by Horn by about 20, 25 pounds, and he just got really bloodied up. Um, And that didn't leave the commissioners all that eager to get into the cage fighting business. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, the the company was um, basically insolvent at that point. They sort of run out of rope. And I think that's when Myro started looking to outside investors to try and get money to fund the next few events. He was sort of, you know, after nearly a decade, he was still in that same state of mind where he was trying to construct the train tracks in front of the train and, you know, lay down enough track before, you know, he'd have to run off the rails. And that's how he wound up getting connected to the Frutitas. Um, Lorenzo, the the younger brother of the Fertitta brothers that wound up buying the UFC, who had been on the Nevada Athletic Commission, and sort of, you know, stewed on it for a year and a half and decided he thought it would be a good investment opportunity. He wasn't persuaded when he was a commissioner that it would be good to sanction the UFC, but he decided it might be a valuable investment target. So he wound up making a deal with Meyerowitz for two million dollars to buy the ufc in 2000 end of 2000 and they took over in 2001 yeah so i mean it's crazy to think that in 2000 the ufc was worth two million dollars and today the last time i checked it's worth about uh, 10 billion dollars um so 12, 12 billion now yeah, well, it's, yeah. it moves quick yeah so like space 6, 000, of a year there yeah so it's about what six thousand x growth in 23 years which any venture capital firm would be quite happy with returns um that size um so 
So uh, Frank and Lorenzo Fertitta from, I guess they ran a gaming company in Casino called Station, um, yeah. and they headed up a, a brand that they would subsequently incorporate called uh, Zuffa, I believe, or I believe that's how you pronounce it, which basically means to fight. Is that correct in Italian? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, essentially yeah. they bought the company in partnership with Dana White, who became president and of course remains president to this very day, Twenty. Uh, three years later and um yeah. you know the ufc started going off on a different trajectory but it wasn't like overnight success i mean it, there was about what four or five years before the ultimate fighter won and that yeah. period wasn't exactly uh full of tailwinds um you know before we get into that i mean what can you tell us about you know dana white when people think of him today he's like this joe rogan-esque character you know he's got the razor shaven head he's quite bulky and stocky he wears yeah. his tight t-shirts but when you look at him back in the day he didn't really have that persona it's mm -hmm. kind of like the elon musk jeff bezos sort of transformation when you see them in the late 90s essentially for lack of a better word they were basically geeks and now they have this sort of superhuman uh look and feel to them um but dana white from what i understand made his name as a basically a fitness instructor um and he had really no real prior experience in you know mixed martial arts um that i came across yeah. in my um research so what can you tell us about dana white you know the man the myth the the so-called legend behind the ufc at that time yeah he's a strange person he's definitely not a geek uh he was he's always been kind of a wild person he he was nearly thrown out of high school. he was thrown out of high school twice and he wound up having to go live with his grandparents to get his his high school degree mm -hmm. um but yeah he you know he he went to college for a, like a month i think and just dropped out didn't like it but he had grown up obsessed with boxing and he um had originally hoped to become a boxer and he he, he was an amateur boxer in boston for a few um months let's say and then decided he, he he as he says it he saw a couple of older fighters that were beginning to have problems putting sentences together they're beginning to be a little confused that show signs of of chronic brain trauma and so he got scared of that and was like i don't want that to be me yeah. so he still wanted to work in the fight world so he decided to you know just stick around work at the gym teach fitness classes and you know he tells this story that's that's you know infamous at this point too where one of whitey bulger's enforcers tony weeks or kevin weeks um came to the gym he was teaching at and expected a kind of shakedown money a little protection money a few thousand dollars you know paid to them to allow them to keep doing business in the neighborhood that whitey bulger um controlled and you know dana didn't have anything close to that amount of money and just kind of didn't know what else to do so he, he decided to run away he flew to vegas which is where he had gone to high school and um he just landed in vegas you know the only people he knew were his old high school friends didn't have you know a college degree didn't have anything but his sort of optimism and his his you know sense of hustle so he just drove around to every m or not mma gym every fitness gym in town 
said, Hey, I, I used to teach boxing, fitness, cardio classes in, in Boston. Can you put me in rotation? Can you give me an hour long class? Can you, you know, and he eventually got himself set up with enough um, classes that he was able to um, build a, a kind of career for himself doing that. And eventually it really kind of took off, you know, in the mid nineties, boxing was a huge deal as Mike Tyson versus Evander Holyfield is a really popular um you know, Oscar De La Hoya was coming up. Floyd Mayweather was just becoming, um, you know, a, a star boxer, just beginning to. And so there's a lot of interest in boxing. It was a period of Taibo. You know, everyone was getting excited about the health benefits of, of these sort of super hardcore, um, you know, fight sport training routines. And so he was able to capitalize on that. And he spun that off into a, a bunch of different enterprises. Like he started his own athletic apparel company, which, you know, failed pretty quickly. He started managing gyms himself instead of just teaching in them, he started teaching privates to really high powered executives from casinos around Las Vegas. And that's how he met the Fertitas where they had gone to high school together, him and Lorenzo and Lorenzo, asked Dana to put an executive gym, build an executive gym for him and some of the other casino executives at station in the corporate building that they had across the street from their casino, which you know would later become where the UFC headquarters were for, for, you know, the main part of their growth period in the two thousands. And so the Fertitas, when they bought the UFC, it was a, for them, it was a small investment, right? $2 million. At the time, the year they bought the UFC, they made nearly a billion dollars in revenue from the casino business. So, you know, it was almost a rounding error for them. It was almost like, you know, a few coins in the couch. Um, and they paid the full purchase price themselves, Lorenzo and his brother, Frank Fertitta. Um, but they had been friends with Dana. And so they thought it would be a good business for Dana to run on the side. It was, you know, it was really too small for them to really get too invested in or involved in. And it was still controversial, but they gave it to Dana and he, they appointed him president. They gave him 10% ownership in the company, even though as, as far as I could you know, find, he didn't put up any money at all, but they just gifted him this sort of ownership a sweat equity sort of an incentive to that he could get a payout if he worked hard enough. Mm -hmm. Um, and he kind of like ran away with it. It became sort of his baby. It became his, his, um, his dream job in a lot of ways. It gave him a chance, a lifeline to stay involved in the fight business. Um, without having to be a fighter himself, without having to go through all the negatives of, you know, a career as a fighter himself. Yeah, he yeah. still. He, he um, also came across as, uh, until this day, um, you know, someone with quite the the chip on his shoulder. And you know, I was reading in mm -hmm. in Cage Kings that he always felt a, a twinge of sort of self consciousness when he compared himself to the students at Bishop Gorman, a school he'd gone to, where many of the kids came from rich families. And um, I've got a quote here um, from his mom, um, which when reflecting on the differences between you know the cars that dana white drove the the clothes he wore the houses he lived in versus all of the other kids uh his mom basically said let me tell you the difference between you and all these uh fucking rich kids you hang around with 
they're always going to be rich and you're not. And if you fucking blow it, you'll be pumping gas into their cars one of these days. You're their pal now, but just you wait. So that's the kind mm-hmm. of backdrop um, against which Dana White grew up in, always felt less than everyone else, but rather than use that as a sort of reason to kind of roll over and just you know be subservient to the world, he used that as fuel to work hard and to prove everyone wrong and to elevate himself to those ranks. And I guess buying the UFC, being gifted this 10% equity was his opportunity to actually take something. It was his vehicle to prove the world wrong, despite having tried other things like managing gyms and running classes. This was something you could potentially take to the to the big leagues. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was it was a hundred percent his dream job. And what's interesting about the early years too is kind of ties back into what we're talking about, but they because the Fertitas had so many connections, uh, you know, in Nevada through, you know, being part of this massive gaming company, you know, they had a really good political and sort of entrepreneurial reputa- reputation. And they were able to get the UFC back on cable within a matter of months. You know, they had originally forecast that after buying it, it would take, you know, a year and a half to get, you know, the UFC reinstated onto all the major pay-per-view providers in the u.s and they did it in their third show um but that didn't save them it like it didn't change the sales trajectory at all which is interesting it kind of you know it's one of the early tensions i think in in kind of showing what they wound up having to do with the company you know they had this salvation plan that didn't actually save the company it sort of just kept pushing the company further down and i've you know in the book that i kind of you know say that this is all because the ufc had become kind of dated at that point it was sort of a holdover from the bad old days of of you know 1990s shock tv you know like howard stern coming down in the fart man costume at the mtv music awards or whatever it's sort of like you know, there's there's only so long that stuff seems shocking. At a certain point, it just starts to seem like cheap and like not actually that interesting or funny. Um, and I think that's kind of the period that they were stuck in when they bought it and, you know, they got access to all those homes again that they had been kicked out of on the pay-per-view market, but no one wanted to buy it anymore because it just seemed like a an old and irrelevant product. And I think that's really where you know, they kept going long enough to find reality television, which is kind of what helped re- rebrand the company in the public's imagination. And it, it gave them a new generation of sympathetic fighters, you know, like you were talking about people you knew, you know, as an audience member, as people you could follow as characters or people, not just these sort of faceless practitioners of a particular martial art. You know, and they fight once every three or four months. They fight one night and you don't see them again or hear from them again. You're not really sure how anyone gets matched against each other, what, you know, the behind the scenes logistics are. Um, but that would, you know, when when it's like Diego Sanchez or Forrest Griffin or, you know, Kenny Florian or, you know, Nate Corey, like, almost every member of the the first ultimate fighter season was a character and they stuck around they would headline fight night events on spike for the you know the free 
um, events they would have in between pay-per-views. And, you know, it really, it hooked a generation of fans. And, you know, that was a period when the roster, you know, was two or 300 people. It was maybe half or a third the size it is now. So it was much easier to follow people as characters and to get connected to those people, whether they're winning or losing. You know, they yeah. A, lot, yeah. a lot of those fighters could, you know, be 50-50 fighters, but they're interesting people. And, you know, you respect how much they sacrifice and, you know, how you know, aggressive they are, you know, like Kenny Florian famously, he, you know, at, at a certain point he fought at featherweight in the UFC, but he's competing on the ultimate fighter in the middleweight division at 185 pounds, 40 pounds up from where he would end his career in the UFC. So it's, you know, that's an admirable thing, you know, in and of itself, whether he wins or loses, just seeing someone, test themselves that way it just it creates a really strong connection with the audience and i think that's that's one of those things that gets kind of smothered or kind of elbowed out of the frame and a lot of the the current ufc production is like you know everyone's an extra you know most of the fighters just they come in they go out again you don't get an opportunity to follow them you don't get a chance to sort of attach to them because everything's about wins and losses yeah, you don't have the same I mean, except for the very top fighters, you don't have the same element or level of storytelling that you perhaps did with the Ultimate Fighter, which for those who haven't seen it was basically like the TV show Survivor meets mixed martial arts where people would not only fight to stay in the um in the house so to speak, but they would also partake in lots of you know challenges and whatnot um outside of the uh the house that they'd stay in like you know pushing a tractor down the road and seeing who could push the tractor the furthest that kind of thing um and mm. absolutely right like just thinking back to that time like i remember the you know chris lieben versus josh koscheck feud and just watching yeah. that made me so much more excited to actually watch the fight because you'd seen these guys just basically go at it inside the house and get really personal with each other and there was all sorts of emotions spilling over and i guess you know some of that was later incorporated into things like ufc countdown where you'd have this sort of story building up to a fight and it would get you excited um to watch but essentially like you said you know um dana white and the fatita brothers essentially took over the ufc but despite the Fatita brothers connections despite getting eventually sanctioned in nevada despite getting back on pay-per-view didn't mean that there was overnight success it really was the success of the ultimate fighter and that finale between forrest griffin and stefan bonner that was uh it seems uh, a turning point for the sport um you know what happened on the back of the success of uh the ultimate fighter one mike uh they made a lot of money <laughs> <laughs> How, just, how quickly was the turnaround though after you know 2005 uh it was very quick i think within two years they had quadrupled their the revenue they were making tens of millions instead of losing you know six to eight million a year um immediately after the first ultimate fighter see that's how ari emmanuel gets connected with dana white originally he saw these news stories about you know, this breakout hit on this new cable channel, The Ultimate Fighter. And that had driven pay-per-view buys for the Randy Couture, Chuck Liddell uh, rematch that became, I think, the biggest pay-per-view hit they had had to that point. And so he cold called Dana White and the Fertitas, and he just kept calling and calling and saying, I want to represent the UFC. I can help 
I can help you get deals. I can help you, you know, find other broadcasters that'll work with you. And so he went chasing after this HBO deal to get the UFC on HBO, which at the time was the biggest boxing broadcaster and it was highly appealing both to Lorenzo Fertitta and Dana White, who had been, um, you know, really reverential about the boxing world and really wanted to put the UFC on sort of, you know, equal footing with boxing as a sport and a cultural phenomenon. Um, and that deal wound up not working, but a lot of other deals wound up working. So the, the, the biggest one was the deal with spite, which um, they, they had what's called a barter deal for the first UFC or the first ultimate fighter season, which was meant that the UFC Zufa paid for the production of the show in exchange for a percentage of the advertising revenue. And so Spike didn't put up any money at all. All they all they said they would do was market the show a little bit and split the advertising revenue. After the first season, the finale with Stefan Bonner and Forrest Griffin that you had mentioned, after that was such a hit, they negotiated a new deal that night in a loading dock of the arena immediately after the fights were over. And uh, they spike put up a lot of money. They put up $10 million, give or take, for an, another season of The Ultimate Fighter. And then they were going to pay a, the exact figure. It's between, I think, one and a half or $2 million for a fight night event, four fight night events a year. Um, and so immediately that alone, was that was more than the UFC had made in a year not even counting pay-per-views, just through Spike, they were making more than the company had ever made in its entire history after that first season. Wow. And then a couple of years later, they signed a new deal that was worth even more, $75 million a year that allowed them to go start building their international infrastructure even more. They started signing high-profile deals in Europe, in um, Australia, Canada, so they, and then the pay-per-view business just exploded too because all of these people that were getting platformed on Spike and that you know were drawing fans like you know through coming in through the Ultimate Fighter these people were converting into pay-per-view buyers and so the pay-per-view sales exploded and soon they were you know making 2 300 million dollars a year when you know, they had been struggling to make seven or eight million dollars a year in 2001, 2002. Mm. It just it, it changed everything. Yeah, it's, it's for, interesting. And um, just for the audience's benefit as well, Ari Emanuel, uh, top talent agent in Hollywood, who essentially um, was the inspiration for Ari Gold in Entourage, the TV show. So um, that was a fascinating sort of insight there. But also you mentioned HBO and I think it was, um, I think I've got the name here, Jim Lampley. He was taken mm -hmm. to a fight in 2006. So this is when the UFC was courting HBO. And he basically said, you know, what I see with the UFC are bar fights. They might be very good bar fights, but they're still bar fights. And it's just crazy seeing like the amount of rejection that the UFC encountered mm -hmm. in that sort of 13 to 15 year period from 1993 to the late 90s um that perhaps people would later come to regret because you know today the ufc as we already alluded to 12 billion dollar business generating over a billion dollars a year in revenue um but perhaps just for you know the entrepreneurs listening you know rejection doesn't always mean what you're working on won't work just means you need to find 
you know, keep find the yes by working with other people and finding different ways forward. Um, but with um, respect to, you know, that sort of turnaround, obviously Ari Emanuel would later come to buy the UFC in 2016. Um, but, you know, we talked about the Ultimate Fighter 1, and it was interesting that the coaches for Season 1, Randy Couture and Chuck Liddell, were only paid, I think it was $800 a week, uh, which is crazy yeah. to think back on that now, especially given how instrumental the, the Ultimate Fighter 1 yeah. was on the um, fortunes of the UFC. And, you know, it went. the UFC subsequently went on to, as you say, generate hundreds of millions in revenue. Now, when we look at other sports, other sports typically will share revenue with their employees, a.k.a. their athletes, 50-50. Um, now, yeah. with the UFC, that number is quite a bit more skewed and kind of harkens back to those Ultimate Fighter 1 contracts in some respects. I mean, what can you tell us about the UFC, its fighter contracts, and the fact that unless you're a top-tier fighter who's almost a household name, you're probably not earning enough to, to really make a living unless you put your neck on the line three to four times a year. Um, yeah, you're, you're basically living paycheck to paycheck still. Um, and you know, I mean, this, this is kind of part of what's prompted, you know, the UFC is facing two antitrust suits right now in the U S from fighters arguing that there were, their wages were illegally suppressed over, you know, a period of, there's two separate periods, but basically it's, it's close to a decade. And, um, you know, it, the UFC has all the leverage over fighters because, you know, there aren't any major competitors anymore for, for high level mixed martial arts um, in North America, at least. And, you know, they're, they don't disclose fighter pay, you know, the most athletic commissions in North America now, um, have decided to withhold fighter pay. They used to make fighter pay public at every event. It was sort of an old holdover from boxing or requirement from um, boxing regulations. And that's changed now. So it it's hard to get uh, a full view of what fighters in the UFC get paid, but the antitrust suit has, has made a lot of that payment information public and it's, you know, the current estimates of fighter um, pay is that it's about 13 to 16% of the UFC's total revenue. And of that 13 to 16%, that's not all pay that goes to the fighters. A lot of that will be like um, uh, the UFC, the way they do their accounting is they'll, um, they'll count um, the cost of a drug testing program that's run through USADA, they they count that as fighter compensation. They count a lot of the fringes of sort of paying for medical um, coverage to stitch someone's eye up on the night of an event as sort of fighter compensation. So like yeah. even that, you know, pretty meager percentage is a little bit inflated. But, you know, most fighters, um, I think, I think I wound up cutting this quote from the book. I, I can't even remember, but it's it's in another story I'm working on right now. Alexia Linick, who fought in the UFC, he was a heavyweight, mm -hmm. um, had this um, quote where he said, you know, 
if if you win, you have enough to live for eight months, and if you lose, four months. So yeah. just you know, it's and he was a top a top fifteen heavyweight. He was a main event fighter in three different events. He beat a former UFC heavyweight champion. Um, you know, he fought in the UFC I think for six or seven years. Well-known guy, not a superstar. It's not Conor McGregor, but you know, he's he had done more than enough, I think, to to deserve a kind of steady income and not to have to start thinking about what he's going to do again three months into the future. Yeah, you know, he's yeah. got got a lot of kids, I, and you know, he's a main event fighter. He's he's a he's on the closer to the top end rather than the bottom end. So I think for a lot of the bot, it's, you know, it's, it's just a youth culture. They draw young people in that, that haven't realized that most of them aren't going to make it to the top of the pyramid. They're all, you know, they're all kind of the building blocks at the bottom of the pyramid that someone else is going to step on their back as they sort of make their own sort of McGregor-esque climb to the top of that pyramid and so when they sign these contracts for 12,000 and 12,000 and you know they have to pay their own trainers out of that they have to pay for their own medical coverage out of that they have to pay for their own you know training costs gym fees you know and in a lot of cases they have to pay for their cornermen to travel with them mm-hmm. you know the UFC only gives i think they give you two hotel rooms so if you know if you look at most corners uh, teams it's three people plus a fighter in the corner and so you know most people have to pay out of pocket to fly extra training partners or corner people with them to events um so you know at that level and not even counting taxes or you know anything like that you know it, it's hard to imagine how you could have a stable decent sort of life raise a family with the kind of money the ufc pays it's sort of short bursts and it's just enough for a few months for a few months you feel like you're king like oh i can buy in and go get a playstation go get a you know get new tires on my car or whatever but then eight nine weeks in you start feeling that crunch again that the tourniquet tightening yeah absolutely and um it's kind of reminiscent of the way a lot of uh, major record labels work where they might sign an artist for x amount of dollars three albums whatever the case may be but then the cost to hire a record studio producer promote the album basically all the on costs get charged back to the band and the band who was expecting say a check for a million dollars ends up with 150k it's like where did the rest of it go oh all that stuff you guys were enjoying for the past two years on tour the limos the flights this that the other well, you know, someone's got to pay for that. It's not going to be us. So it's a similar sort of thing here, unfortunately. And um, one of the, the curious things I also found was in the um, the fighter contracts. Basically, mm-hmm. the fighters are independent contractors, um, right. which means there's no you know health benefits or any of the sort of federal protections you get as a full-time employee. But normally, if I'm an independent contractor, I have the freedom to go and work for someone else. Um, whereas in this case... They're independent contractors, but they're essentially not allowed to fight for other productions. Now, as you say, nowadays, the UFC has more or less beaten everyone or acquired them. But there was a time when you did have, you know, Strike Force and um, Pride and other um, promotions and fighters simply weren't allowed to go over there. Otherwise, they'd basically forfeit 
um, their spot in the UFC. So it's um it's interesting now that there are these two sort of antitrust um, cases. And I did read something actually on your Twitter the other day where a court found that uh, Zufa maintained its dominant position in the fighter uh, input market through anti-competitive conduct. Um, so it would be interesting to see what comes of that. But Zufa being Zufa, these guys are worth billions of dollars. I imagine more yeah. likely than not, whatever comes of comes to fruition will probably be a, a slap on the wrist, um, so to speak. Um, I think it'll be worse than that. I think okay. it'll, um, yeah, the way antitrust law works in the U.S. is if if you're found to have violated antitrust law and suppressed wages in this case, um, the judgments are tripled so that they're punitive so it's not just like if you know if i did something illegal to pay you less than you would have gotten in a competitive market i'm not just liable to make up the difference because then why wouldn't every business suppress wages and then gamble on you know and if if the worst case scenario is just you make up the difference then like why would you start at a fair wage in the first place so to kind of avoid that the the penalty is triple what the the gap would be. So I think in the first antitrust suit case that they're facing, damages could be close to $2 billion if um, the court finds, I think it'll be a jury trial. And so if the jury finds that the damages are, you know, hit that maximum threshold, there's still a lot of debate about the model for how the damages are calculated. Um and that itself could be a really interesting um, argument that plays out at trial. Um, but the court in that ruling that that um, came out, the class certification ruling, the judge said he would be open to hearing injunctive relief, which would be which would mean that while the the case continues to go on, the um, the court could prevent the UFC from enforcing some of the worst parts of its fighter contract that the most exploitive parts of the fighter contract speculation has been that that would mean putting a hard limit on exclusivity. The, the period that the UFC could make fighters exclusive to the UFC for whether that be one or two years. So, you know, even if you sign a 12 fight contract, you know, if you don't fight 12 times in two years, then the fighter can go negotiate with someone else, even if they have fights left on the contract. Um, and that would be incredibly damaging, I think, because then you could have, you know, like what Francis Ngannou has just done to go fight Tyson Fury. You could have, you know, Conor McGregor, you know, within six months, he could go fight Manny Pacquiao, which he's been talking about forever, or go fight Jake Paul or, you know, do anything he wants. And, you know, that would be true of the whole roster. And all of a sudden, you know, even the biggest stars could start finding platforms that pay them more than the UFC does for, you know, any number of bizarre sort of bare knuckle fighting or, you know, professional wrestling or, you know, who knows what it is. Um, you know, maybe Israel Adesanya could go be in the Olympic uh, breakdancing team, which is, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I'm not sure if breakdancing is part of the exclusivity, but it, the UFC's exclusivity clause is wide ranging in terms of other 
um, formal activities that fighters can participate in. So um, that could really be a serious blow. I don't. It won't kill the UFC. I, you know, I think it's a mistake to start talking in apocalyptic terms, but it would be a serious blow. And I think it's one of the benefits of the merger that they just had with um, the WWE is now, you know, the UFC on its own is a $12 billion company. The UFC and the WWE together is, you know, more than $20 billion and they're publicly owned now. So, you know, whatever hit would happen in the future, a large part of that would be borne by public shareholders. And um, at, at that scale, it would be, easier to kind of absorb those sorts of damages mm. um as a conglomerate that's made up of two companies instead of just the ufc in isolation um but yeah it, it's it's a serious threat and i think the ufc has they've fought it tooth and nail i think they've taken it very seriously and um i think that you know there's even more pressure now than before to, you know, potentially reach a settlement, you know, or, you know, the closer they get to trial, the higher I think the stakes are. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, um, look, we are just about out of time and I know it's getting late over there in New York. So we'll bring this one to a close. We've only really just scratched the surface of everything readers can expect to take out of this book uh, on how, you know, the UFC went from an idea in the head of Art Davies in a public library uh, through to a $12 billion and growing business. So definitely check out Cage Kings, how an unlikely group of moguls, champions, and hustlers transformed the UFC into a $10 billion industry. The book is available everywhere good books are sold. And um, if people want to follow along uh, with your sort of career, Michael, where's the best place to um to keep tabs online? Um. I mean, you can email me, I think, you know, Twitter was the going, you know, platform for a while. I kind of, I don't know. I ran out of things to say to the general public, I think. Um, but I, you know, I, you know, I'm certainly a, a blabbermouth, so I'm happy to talk to people directly, you know, as, as people, but I think email is probably the best way to get my attention at this point. Uh, I do have a Twitter, uh, you know, I, maybe I'll, I'll get the, the bug again to start running my mouth in public um and awesome. yeah perfect well i will add those um links to the show notes for our listeners michael congrats again on a fantastic book i found it a gripping read and um thanks for your time today and uh, all the best with, with whatever comes next i appreciate it it was fun that's a wrap if you like what you heard take a moment to leave us a review wherever you listen to it and share it with a colleague or friend. Venture Backed was brought to you by Sonic Boom Media, a content agency helping VC firms generate better deal flow. Head over to sonicboom.vc to learn more and sign up to our fortnightly newsletter for more podcast episodes and venture insights.